In the brand new book, Dear By Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag Bisexual Men Speak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are Black, Mask, and Bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi-plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear By Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but We love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and you know the drill. Every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Do you flip through celebrity news magazines when you're at the grocery store? I know I do. Have you clicked on your fair share of couple reveals, bikini pics, and stars are just like us spreads? Uh Uh-huh. I have. Are you talking to me? Have you thought about the people behind those photos? Honey, that's what we're doing today. We're learning about Hollywood's paparazzi and what this profession captures about power, politics, and pop culture in America. Welcome to the show, honey, our expert for this week, Vanessa Diaz, who is an associate professor of Chicane in Latine Studies at Loyola Marymount University. Her first book, Manufacturing Celebrity, which is published by Duke University Press, come through, you know, I love an accolade. She examines the history, politics, and power of Hollywood's paparazzi. And today we're asking, who are Hollywood's paparazzi? Vanessa, how are you? Are you just like thriving, having a gorgeous day? (laughs) I am. It's even better now because I'm here with you. Not to start off with like a personal question, but I did hear our producer say when we were starting that you had said something about gardening. Is there a garden that we need to be aware of? Is there like any standout crops that you've like become attached to? Like what is like really giving you life this time? Yeah, well, I'm Puerto Rican and Italian. So I have what I like to call a Caribbean Mediterranean garden. So my garden has, you know, Mediterranean classics like rosemary and thyme and and these kinds of desert herbs. But I also have mango, passion fruit, guava. Right now we have mangoes growing and Cape gooseberries are ripe. We have Sicilian blackberries that I pick every day. So that's what's happening over here in LA. 
I am so glad I followed my journalistic like instinct to ask because that is like so different than what we get to grow in Texas because it's just like hotter than fucking Hades here. And you just, you know, we're just giving like tomatoes and pumpkins. But wow, your garden sounds amazing. Okay, so now we're going into our questions, I swear. I want to go back to, I think it was like 2010 or 11. I'm like 24 and I was working at, at a salon in Beverly Hills and I really wanted this peanut butter and jelly sandwich that they had at this cafe around the corner. It was the only place that had a peanut butter and jelly if you like didn't want to go to Whole Foods and like fucking make one. And it was just delicious. So I'm standing there minding my own business. All of a sudden, Lisa Vanderpump herself comes inside and she's like, honey, and she's got her little like British accent. Could you hold up this newspaper and help me get to my car? Because she'd like run in off the street because there was just like all these people chasing her. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to be like that person holding a newspaper to like prevent a picture. Like this is your moment to shine. I went outside in front of her holding up the newspaper (laughs) and this guy who was like 6'6 and just like made a muscle, honey, he came and embraced me in a very aggressive way and not the aggressive way that I love to be embraced. He just... (laughs) kind of picked me up and just put me in the street not like in front of a car he just was like so but needless to say I wasn't that much help they were definitely wanting that shot and it was very intense (laughs) to be in that moment the PB&J was worth it and I still stuck around for it I did get I did ultimately get the PB&J but that's like the only experience where I ever had like like every other time I've ever like been around paparazzi like being a public figure like I've always just tried to give you like face trying to be I was just trying to do in my mind like what I think you're supposed to do in paparazzi pictures like you're just uh, 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 uh. <laughs> but um when like paparazzi historians like think about it like when was that first era of like paparazzi like yeah I would say the 60s and 70s was really when Rangalella who like he's kind of known as the grandfather of paparazzi image taking in the U.S. He had famously had this feud with Jackie Onassis. She sued him multiple times, but they also knew each other. And those images of her are now in the Smithsonian, which was something that I looked at when I was a fellow there because I'm like, there's this, you know, on the one hand, this appreciation and value of the historical content that these images take at the same time that these images were taken of Jackie O when she hated this man, right? So it's very layered because the history of sort of hatred of paparazzi is very baked into American cultural history, but the way that it has played out over the decades has shifted. Mm. And back then it was really like there was Ron Galella and like sort of a couple of his disciples and and affiliates, so to speak. But it wasn't a, a whole kind of area of labor the way that it became, if that makes sense. It does. Does each kind of like country or like area have its own origin story with like their own paparazzi? Like, is there kind of like a Europe one and like a, or is it all kind of from here? It's a very universal story in that, You know, the term paparazzo comes from the 1960 classic film La Dolce Vita, the Federico Fellini film. That was the annoying news photographer, and they called him paparazzo. And so that becomes this reference for photographers who are seen as not doing news photography, which I would argue is absolutely incorrect. They are doing news photography. They're just not seen as sort of professionalized and going through the formal channels that 
someone who is either on staff at a news outlet or employed by an agency like Getty or something in any kind of like permanent or or long-term contracted way where they have permission on a red carpet. I mean, that's this distinction between red carpet photographers and paparazzi photographers, which in imagery, like in popular imagery, they're often conflated, but their role socially, historically, and in terms of the actual newsworthiness of what they produce is quite different. Red carpet photographs, you know, you can have a hundred photographers taking the same image, you're rarely going to have paparazzi images where more than a handful of photographers are taking the same image because they're supposed to be unique, newsworthy in the moment. And yet that's kind of what's become the antithesis of what people identify as paparazzi work. They think of it as something that isn't news because these photographers are not real photojournalists. But in fact, the origin story of paparazzo, paparazzi is this annoying news photographer in this classic European film. And so so we borrowed that. Slay. Okay, so the process in 2023, there's like the celebrity, then you have a photographer, and then the news outlet. Is that who's involved in the process? That's, I think, the gist of it. Oh, and then the consumer. Do consumers count? In the actual process of getting the image, oh, yeah, either no, in print really. or online or, or on a news station, I, I don't consider the consumer as part of that production process, though a very important part of, of obviously circulation and cultural practice. But the the short of it is that, you know, I would say decades ago when there were fewer paparazzi, it was a little bit more homegrown, right, before the digital age outlets weren't fully digital with imagery until the early 2000s, right? That was this long transition process. And even the way that images got circulated among publications, you know, it wasn't until well into the 2000s that you got to a place where all of the images were coming through digitally to People Magazine, to Us Weekly, to CNN, right? There used to be a combination. It was, it was a lot different. And so there were paparazzi or photographers in general who would sell directly to outlets. And that really shifted as we got into these huge numbers where with the digitization of images, a magazine might have gone from getting, let's say, a hundred, a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand on a really busy day of images that might be considered for publication online or on video or in print to a million a day. And this happened seemingly overnight. I mean, there was a transition, but it happened very quickly, right? And so with that came the kind of beginning of the sort of conglomeratization of photo outlets, photo agencies, where the paparazzi as individuals or photographers as individuals couldn't necessarily kind of come to the table in the same way because we're dealing with larger numbers. We're dealing with contract negotiations with major outlets and the outlets needed to limit how many people were they going to be in direct contact with. And so agencies which have always, you know, existed, but really became the way of getting the images to the outlets. So that these massive online drives, right, these like FDP sites became this entrance point where the agencies that had contracts with different publications would load just thousands and thousands and thousands of their images from different photographers 
to these sites that then the outlets would say, okay, we want these, we want those, then go to the agencies and and negotiate those prices, usually not being a fixed price. And of course, there's the photographer on the other end of it, whose name may or may not even be associated with the image. Most times it would just, and still this is still the case, most times the paparazzo or the photographer who took the picture is not evident in the image. Their name isn't there. It's just the agency name credited. Like, What are some of the big players? Like, Would we recognize any of their names? Right now, I would say the biggest paparazzi image name is Batgrid. That's right now. But Batgrid is the merging of paparazzi agencies that were previously GSI and AKM and these other agencies that then merged together and then kind of continually became more conglomeratized. So my guess is most people probably haven't heard of those. Most people have probably heard of Getty, maybe Wire Image, Splash. Yes. And that's not to say that you won't see some paparazzi images come through those channels, particularly Splash. But Wire Image and Getty, I think, are a lot more associated with the red carpet image, the formal events. And that's the sort of brand of image that comes with those names. It's You might get some paparazzi imagery, but they have tended to come through these agencies that specialize in this. And so you have the photographers who deliver the images to the agencies, and then the agencies sell on their behalf. And in terms of profiting, the agencies really wield all of the power. Now, of course, the outlets do too, because they ultimately can they can name the price, right? Like the amount that used to be paid for images prior to the financial crisis of 2008 was on a level just kind of exponentially higher. And then the agency started to say, oh, okay, well, if we can make hundreds of thousands of dollars on one image, then that's going to be our bottom line. And then after 2008, the outlets, you know, including outlets like people who are still huge and have huge budgets were like, yeah, we're not going to pay that anymore. Right. So there's that trickle down effect. I would say the agencies have a lot of power The outlets have, you know, ultimately power over shifting the market values. And the photographers are always at the bottom of this food chain and have no say over the cost of their images and and actually have no way to know if they're actually even getting the cut they're supposed to get. Most photographers get a cut around the 30% range of their image sales if they deal directly with the agencies, which, which has to do with a lot of factors that we can get more into depth about, like immigration status and, and other factors. But the reality is that Many paparazzi told me, you know, I heard that the image sold for this much. I got this cut, but that's me assuming that the agents are telling me. So then the person who owns it now or the entity who owns the image is no longer the photographer, it's the agency. And then the news outlet just like licenses its use for those like specified things. Exactly. That's exactly right. The The one thing that can vary is that there are certain photographers who maintain their rights, but that is something that is rare and that has to be negotiated in their contract with the agencies. And what that means is simply that 
everything you said is correct. The agencies have rights and the outlets have temporary rights so that the agency can't sell it to another competing outlet if there's an exclusivity clause for, say, Us Weekly in this case, right? But the photographer can also do with it what they wish outside of those exclusivity clause. But the paparazzo is not necessarily going to have the means to do anything with it because selling to these outlets requires these larger agency contracts. So it really is in the hands of the agents and it's a little bit more symbolic if the photographer maintains rights. It's kind of more symbolic for them to be able to just have access to their own art. And I and I do call it art. I think that it is important cultural history, photography. I think that Rongalella's work is rightfully in the Smithsonian. I think that we have to take this imagery really seriously because it's it's historical and and these are actually skilled photographers. So one thing that I was thinking is like the Sandoval scandal was coming up for me, like Vanderpump Rules. I'm sure a picture of them like that, you know, shows Tom in some kind of way or like Ariana like moving out of the house or whatever. That image would be like worth a lot more in 2023 than it would have been like in 18 or something like what makes the cost or the worth of a picture? Like, is it how many people are talking about that celebrity or, you know, that public thing? Yeah. So this has varied and continues to vary, you know, in I would say the heyday (laughs) of maybe around 2003 to 2008. And they like, that was like a really big time for paparazzi images, Britney Spears stuff, all the kind of like young Hollywood folks going out all the time. And those images were really hot. The Brangelina twins, their images sold to People Magazine for millions of dollars in the most expensive celebrity photos ever to date at that point. And that was of the children, right? Which is a separate thing. People say like, oh, we shouldn't be photographing celebrity children. But celebrities are very happy to have their children be featured in photographs when there's big numbers involved. You know, that's this question of like privacy. When when does it matter? When does it not? Um, who gets to decide on that? But the funding part, I mean, it's really the outlets that do get get to dictate. And that value does come from a combination of the newsworthiness, meaning is there a controversy? Is there a baby born? Is there something that makes the value of the photo higher in a particular moment? And also, does anyone else have it, right? So that even if Jennifer Lopez doesn't have a big controversy around her. If there's a really sweet photo of her and Ben Affleck doing something in a place that's maybe unexpected, looking great or or looking terrible, which I, I mean, could never happen for her, but let's just say it did. <laughs> then the value would be high if only one photographer got that. And, and high, I mean like, well, that could range from several thousand to several hundred thousand at this point in time. Do you want an example of photo costs? Sure. You know, I'm really into Bad Bunny. I teach a class on him. It's like my thing. So, you know, him and Kendall Jenner, paparazzi images of them together. I know that one of the sets that came out over the last couple of months from talking to one of the photographers involved that you know, within a week, it had generated tens of thousands of dollars. And that was just off of 
smaller sales to online outlets. That was before any major print or broadcast had paid for them. So I don't know what the final cost is. I could look into that later, but my guess is that that's going to end up being probably a, a well over six figure set of images. Like the picture of, this, of them like leaving one of those clubs together like after. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. They always say trust your gut. But one time my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows and that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. We must talk about the book and how you went about making this book because you embed yourself with Hollywood's paparazzi, which like it's giving like never been kissed, but paparazzi like undercover, like give it to me. Do you know what I'm saying? So what were some of the most memorable (laughs) moments from your field research? And also you mentioned earlier you worked at People Magazine. Like how did that compare like being in like kind of from the news side to like your own like investigative journalism side? Tell us everything. Yeah. So... I mean, the way that I think about the development of the book was uh, the the kind of beginnings of it. Well, you could even go back to just me being a kid in L.A. I always had like, you know, anyone in Southern California has some kind of like connection spiritually or like more literal to the space. I mean, it dominates it dominates the economy of Southern California, the L.A. region. I was born in L.A. I always was, you know, I was a radio DJ when I was 16. I won like a radio DJ contest and I became Vanessa the Puerto Rican princess. I mean, I was like always in the sort of like 
I had an affinity for entertainment. When I started my senior year at NYU, I was already really active in journalism. I had I had worked for multiple radio stations, many news outlets, and I met an editor from People Magazine at the journalist conference, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. And I got brought in as a paid intern my senior year of college. Um, my primary thing was basically to kind of keep an eye on the Olsen twins who had just started at NYU. And so, you know, I was like a token Latina in the New York bureau. There was very little diversity in the space, in the office, on the red carpet. I appreciated so much like learning and I was very, you know, I, I really, I love writing. I love reporting. I loved doing red carpet interviews. I ended up coming back to LA and I was a stringer, which is basically like a regular freelance reporter for the LA Bureau of People magazine. So I was covering nightlife. I was covering red carpets. And, you know, I, I started to notice paparazzi demographic shifting and noticing a lot of Spanish being spoken among the photographers. And I just got to this point where I was like, there are so many different kinds of politics around gender, around race happening here. Like, I think that this is actually really important information. And I love being on the reporting side, but I'm going to go become an anthropologist so I can write about this from a, a cultural anthropologist, ethnographer's perspective, and try to shed some light on like what is really happening in the celebrity world. Because yes, media is like our number one American export and celebrity culture dominates so much of our life increasingly. So, and the different kinds of celebrities now, right? Like we didn't have TikTokers and YouTubers and all these things a couple decades ago. And now that's like, there's so many different kinds of celebrity and the number of people who want to be famous, who want to be celebrities is like, what is American culture? So much of it is wrapped up in this. And so that's kind of how I came into it. And in terms of memorable moments, I mean, for fucking crying out loud, my book opens with these contrasting vignettes of my friend Chris, who was a paparazzo photographer, getting killed. And my dear, dear friend Natasha, who was a reporter at People Magazine when I started, who I'm still very close with, she confided in me that she was sexually assaulted by Donald Trump in my first interview with her doing research for this book. And I remembered when she did the cover story and I remembered kind of, uh, there was like some energy, but she didn't tell me until I was doing this research. And that was years before he was running for president that I on my computer right now have audio of Natasha Stoinoff who just testified in the E. Jean Carroll rape trial in which he was found guilty of sexual assault. Natasha testified there. So how my doctoral dissertation about celebrity culture ended up being wrapped up with the presidential election of 2016 when she came out with it publicly and was like, hey, you know all those recordings of me telling you which she told me on multiple occasions about that sexual assault. Well, I might need those now because now Donald Trump's people are talking about suing me and I need to prove that not only did I talk about it, it's recorded, it's timestamped. Like this is how crazy the celebrity system is. This is how intense celebrity power is. And so, you know, for me, it's like the bigger point here is like, we've been in a moment, oh, since the pandemic started, I think, and since, you know, the 
2020 murder of George Floyd and killings of Breonna Taylor. And all these people were in this moment where we are interrogating structural hierarchies and inequalities. But we do not always think about the way that these same foundational and structural inequalities we see in places like government and law enforcement also impact Hollywood, also impact celebrity culture. It's another one of the primary institutions of the U.S., and it is subject to the same kinds of power dynamics, right? So we see a case like Harvey Weinstein come to the forefront. That's just one example. Hollywood is full of really serious and egregious abuses of power, racism, gender discrimination, all kinds of forms of abuse, right? Like stereotypes have always come from and been perpetuated by Hollywood. They contribute to our problems. They shape our ideas about race and gender. And that's been since the beginning. So if we're going to talk about rebuilding or, or changing or creating new institutions in the U.S., I'm like, we have to reckon with Hollywood as well. There is definitely like a narrative around paparazzi and we definitely want to explore absolutely, this photography is an art, needs to be valued. There's so much skill to understanding like proportions, where the light's coming from, what's going to look mm -hmm. better, what's going to make a shot, what's not going to make a shot, just knowing, I mean, there's so much skill. I always just like come down to this place of like consent, mm -hmm. you know, and like in creating situations that are like dangerous for anyone. Like, I, I don't want it to be dangerous for the paparazzi. I don't want it to be dangerous for like, you know, the, a person who's the subject of the photos. Like, I mm -hmm. think I just, safety feels like a thing for me. That's like my only thing. Mm -hmm. I wish there was more safety. I very much view paparazzi as very easy scapegoats, right? Like so many people are implicated in, in what I refer to in my book as the Hollywood industrial complex. And I use this concept to explain that contemporary Hollywood is this symbiotic web of interrelated industries, including you know film, TV, music, online media, print media, celebrity management, and that this system constantly generates and promotes celebrity personas in order to stimulate consumption of media at all levels and, and sort of vice versa. And these celebrities are admired and celebrated in contemporary society for being celebrities, for being pronounced worthy of celebration by the very system that manufactures them. And so then the paparazzi are at the bottom of this Hollywood industrial complex. And, and they're really among the most precarious of entertainment labors. And so what happens is it's a really an easy scapegoat, I think, to kick the people who are already at the bottom of the entertainment system, who are already disparaged, instead of actually dealing with the power structures that demand their labor. This idea that they are large, aggressive men, they get referred to as being sort of like in gangs. The media has called them illegals. You know, they're referred to as these like unskilled migrants. I use a quote in my book where someone calls them knuckle scraping mouth breathers who could be robbing a 7-Eleven, but instead they're shooting with a camera. So it, it's so grotesque, the level of racialization of these laborers. And they aren't doing it because they like the celebrities, because they want to be celebrities. They're not, they're literally doing a job that exists that needs to be filled. And for many of these mostly young men, they don't actually have other viable ways of making money in a city that has so much money to be made in the entertainment industry. And it's like someone is going to do this work. And so, if you're someone who is, you know, a, a young Latino who maybe documented or undocumented, 
you don't have more than a high school education and you see this Hollywood system that is so lucrative in a city that is so dominated by Latinos. I mean, we like Latinos make up the majority of the city. We're 20% of the U.S. population and less than 5% of any on-screen roles of any kind, small or large, go to Latinos. So to me, it's like looking at the opportunity that as hated as it is, that for a lot of these guys, and part of the reason they conceptualize themselves often as part of day labor or migrant labor is that perhaps standing outside of Home Depot is literally another option for them. And how much how much would they be exposed to there in terms of danger? And, and, and I don't think people really grasp the full economics involved here in this calculation. Nobody wants to be hated. But what the paparazzi will say is we're already hated. Paparazzi are hated. Latinos are hated. We're, we're like young brown or black men in this country. There's Afro-Latinos in this game, too. And what are their options? And, you know, I, I have talked to celebrities and seen people like, I remember an interview I did with Selma Blair for People Magazine where she said, you know, I really look back at the images paparazzi have taken of me pregnant or with my kid. And I think like how amazing that I get this photo album of these gorgeous pictures in these candid moments. I don't remember the exact quote, but I, I mean, it's a People Magazine article. We could look it up. And I remember being so struck by that. And I feel like Gwen Stefani said something similar at some point because the paparazzi actually brought her an album. I remember that. They made an album of all these pictures of her and her kids. And one day they went to go shoot them at the park and they gave her the album. And she was very touched by these really beautiful pictures. And I think that's another common misconception is that that these paparazzi don't care at all about these people, that they have no feelings, and that there is no interaction there. there there's actually quite a bit of interaction that's why we can see when people don't want a photo taken, right? Yeah. But in Manufacturing Celebrity, you note that paparazzi get the best shots when they're invisible, but that mm -hmm. invisibility can come with a cost. So what forms of risk and precarity do these photographers face when they are on the job and when they're doing their work? Yeah, I mean, this is so much. There's there are so many different levels of of precarity here. I mentioned Chris Guerra, and I'll speak a little bit more specifically about this because this is kind of the worst case scenario, right? He was mm -hmm. he was killed on January 1st, 2013. He was trying to photograph Justin Bieber's Ferrari. Justin was not driving it at the time. The details around his death are, are really extremely murky and based on the reports of the California Highway Patrol officer who was aggressing him. So we... We really don't fully know what happened, something that I, I continue to look into. And I, you know, have seen photographers get assaulted on the job. I have seen them get arrested, of course. And I think that kind of along the lines of what I was saying before, when we're talking about a group of already kind of hated laborers, that it's also a, a demographic that suffers from a lot of racism and different levels of kind of persecution. Did you notice in your research, like people who are undocumented versus like paparazzi who 
either have like a green card or citizens yeah. like do, like did you notice that, like that people who are undocumented get like taken way more advantage of and like get like shittier deals for their photos and stuff absolutely so what would happen is that if you are undocumented and you don't have a social security number then you couldn't be contracted directly with the agency so you would basically have to find someone else to sell the agency your photos mm. and then you would just get some flat rate that another photographer would kind of give you and you would hand over the photos. So the potential for making money was much smaller for those individuals. Um, and it's something you had to be really careful about because, you know, my research ended up in a Breitbart article mm. because I did a talk at UCLA where I talked about the fact that some of the photographers were undocumented. And so then Breitbart's like, oh, we need to target paparazzi work. There's all these undocumented people. And I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying, but that's what got taken. But yes, they were exploited. And what do they have to show for it? They have to show for it that they produced images that we love all while hating them. And their alternatives truly were not better. There's that. And then there's this, this idea of, of, yes, of being invisible and I mean, if we even think about that language of invisibility, right? Like the paparazzo, I have this great image in my book of Gallo, who was one of the main photographers I worked with, perched in a tree <laughs> to take a photo. I believe he was taking a photo of Fergie's baby shower. <laughs> He's in a tree. He doesn't want to be seen. That's risky, but it's to get the shot. Right. And you have to understand, too, that even in those moments where they are invisible, that doesn't mean that they weren't invited to do so. And, and I'll explain a little bit more about that. But like, for example, there was a situation with one of the weddings for The Bachelor where all of these paparazzi the agencies were notified about when the wedding was happening, where it was happening. They asked them to send their guys a bunch of the photographers I work with went to this public park where they were told to go to shoot. And these security guards proceeded to attack them, hold them in false imprisonment, put them in chokeholds with knees on their necks while taking their equipment. This was all filmed by the ABC camera crew. And this footage was all used to show how interested people were in the bachelor wedding. Look how important this was. We had all of these photographers and these security guards had to attack them because they were going to get these images of this wedding and we needed to protect the wedding. These guys were assaulted and this was part of the project of the production company. This similar thing happened with uh, Nick Lachey and Vanessa Manillo's wedding, where they made a huge part of their wedding special about all the different ways they had to block Vanessa coming out in her dress so that Randy Bauer, who was on a boat of Bauer Griffin Agency, he was out on a boat to get images. Of course, how did he know this was happening? There's so much cooperation behind the scenes, but part of what we get is the performance. We're talking about people who are professionally paid actors here most of the time, <laughs> you know, much of the time, I should say. And I think it's really hard to discern which of these moments are fabricated and which are not. 
To be photographed is literally to convey importance. We photograph things that are important. Who were photographed over history? The most important people, right? Poor common folk, they were not photographed. They were not painted. And so celebrities, you know, often act like they are horrified by this inconvenience that is ultimately a result of them being so important, so famous. And, and that many times, not all the time, and not even most of the time, but many times, these are actually moments that are solicited. I've actually seen that too. As an assistant sure. so many times. If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics' full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash curious. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 10% off your first order. Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. I don't want to say who it was for sure because I just like, it makes me feel bad. But like that person, Mm -hmm. whenever they would get their hair done, would always call to say when they were leaving, if it was the North or the South exit Mm -hmm. and really Mm -hmm. counted on those images circa 2010, Mm -hmm. 11, 12 to like Mm -hmm. be in like those like, okay, exclamation mark magazines. Cause especially like tending to your celebrity status, like pre Instagram Mm -hmm. and stuff Mm -hmm. like, which was, I mean, that's, and and I think that the way that paparazzi are like demonized and put at risk, that is super fucked up. Cause that is like from a wider thing Mm -hmm. and that yes. Absolutely. We really do have to look at this larger system that is demanding the images. I am not saying, oh, every celebrity deserves to go through hell. I am saying many celebrities choose in very many different moments to be photographed and it is very collaborative. And I have seen celebrities. I mean, Kim Kardashian used to call many of the people who I worked with before she was the Kim now. Now they have they have other arrangements with photo agencies. I mean, that family famously has contracted with agencies to send paparazzi on their family vacations and they get to 
go through the photos and choose what gets sold and what does. I mean, they, they have so much control there. Talk about consent. I mean, it's like at every level, right? Like what, why is it that we have such beautiful photos of them on a private beach in like French Polynesia? And this question of consent, you know, Britney Spears, you know, she had that framing Britney Spears documentary that was very good, but it showed her complaining about the paparazzi. And I am not saying that there was no moment in which she never had an issue with the paparazzi, but I can tell you that I know very many photographers who had a collaborative and genuinely friendly relationship with her. She was friendly with a lot of photographers. They would tell me about how if she didn't know where she was going, she would tell them and they would help her get there. They would basically create a kind of motorcade for her to help her get to different places. And she had a relationship with a paparazzo. You know, her boyfriend was a photographer, was a paparazzi photographer. And Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, I, I remember distinctly when the photographers I work with were like, oh, we have to go to Malibu to this mall because there were rumors about Will and Jada having issues. And so they called all the agencies. They said, oh, Will and Jada are going to go to this mall. They're going to come out together around this time and we need everyone to get shots of them looking happy and together. Boom. What do you know? People.com, Us Weekly, all over the place. Pictures of Will and Jada, the happy couple. They're doing so well. So we we really, the the average person only gets the, we hate paparazzi part. They don't get the, no, we're actually using them strategically in very many moments. And in fact, managing our celebrity status oftentimes relies on these moments. Because actually as well, like I've never been paparazzi because I don't engage with anyone like that. Like I don't want to be photographed like that in my private life. Like I've never needed to be, I don't want to be like, and all the times where I've looked like shit, like walking around Manhattan, like I've never been photographed. Like, and I feel like I've, I've been like busted in public before and I've never, I don't want to like fuck up my, my track. But I do think that that is a huge thing of like the symbiotic relationship of like celebrities get benefit from it and photographers get benefit and the agencies do it is interesting though. I need to interrogate my own negativity bias. Cause I think also too, I'm just like the part to me where it crosses or becomes just like sad is like when people are profiting and that's not the paparazzi. I mean, these agencies are profiting right. the news site, like all like, it's just like when people are profiting off of someone's like very public right. demise or like making yeah. a mockery of like their like clear struggles with mental health. Like that I think mm -hmm. is like, but that's also not the paparazzi. That's like a much bigger thing. And I feel like the way that like men have breakdowns or like different relationships with mental health is covered really differently than the way that like women's is, but not, that doesn't matter. And that's like no paparazzi's fault. I just mean like, it just, I just feel like that part sucks. Like there's a through line that like human nature sucks. <laughs> well, I don't know that it's human nature. I think we're talking about really specific kinds of economic industries and systems. Exploitation exploitation. And, you know, this question, just coming back to this question also of consent, I think it goes hand in hand with these questions about privacy. And I want to say a few things because, yeah, I mean, first of all, who is profiting off of these moments? Once again, like what we also start to do is think that every photographer in these certain situations must be a paparazzo. It's actually not the case. So I think about like some of the kind of heated moments where I saw paparazzi in controversial times. So like when Lindsay Lohan was going through all of her kind of prison stuff and court dates and 
everyone talked about it like, oh, the paparazzi are swarming everywhere. Oh, no, no, no. That was all kinds of newscasts. That was news photographers. That was paparazzi. That was all of it. And so I think what happens is a media frenzy, because we don't like to see people we care about or people we feel are important or people we might feel we know, we don't want to see them in these frenzied situations that feel hectic, that may create a panic. And they go to the negative association. Well, we hate paparazzi and paparazzi travel in packs and they're aggressive. Those are paparazzi. That's not always the case. There are paparazzi in there, but they're not all paparazzi. I'm sure that some of those people are sent there from news outlets because that's actually a newsworthy story. And so I think that's part of this even when red carpet scenes get aggressive, people be like, oh, the paparazzi, not one of the photographers on the red carpet is a paparazzo, period, end of story. Paparazzi don't have access to those spaces. But that's the narrative when it gets loud. Oh, these photographers, they're these paparazzi are crazy. No, those are red carpet photographers. Which also, huge learning. I did not know the difference. Like, that is, like, so major. Like, never... Did I never know the difference ever, ever, ever? That is so interesting. Well, and look, there's a few things to point out there about this difference. And I point this out in my book. If you look at the demographics of red carpet photographers, it's mostly white men. It's white men who are allowed in elite spaces and more women. There are more women who are red carpet photographers than paparazzi. Almost no women paparazzi. But these are elite spaces where the celebrities are in direct contact, where they're regulated. What else happens? Because they're regulated spaces where the celebrities are passed through and they get photographed and it's all coordinated, well, the photographers don't have to run. They don't have to interact in a different way. They're not put in as precarious of a situation than when you have to be on the street. You know, it contributes to this idea of paparazzi being these sort of like lawless anything goes. But it also gets caught up with the demographic difference and the class difference that's therein. Who's on the red carpet? Who can be in these spaces? And how these different photos require different levels of of really putting the body at risk. You know, the other thing that I wanted to go back to that you mentioned was gender, right? How women having kind of breakdowns or whatever get covered differently from men. And, you know, I mean, I have a whole chapter in my book about body teams. It's like, this chapter basically looking at how women's bodies get hyper interrogated at every turn. I mean, there there was a period, I'm not sure what the exact structure of the magazines are like now, but People Magazine had what was called a body team and Us Weekly and all these other magazines had equivalents where it was basically like a team that ridiculed mostly women's bodies and that that was like either they looked skinny or they looked fat or what's happening. They had a baby. Now we need to make sure they lose their weight and we can focus on that. And a similar thing I think happened or happens with women and their mental state, you know, that there's like hypervigilance around that. And, and ultimately, you know, this is really something that impacts women in society on a very broad level. And it's, you know, that's the ways in which celebrity culture becomes simultaneously a microcosm of and the perpetuator of our worst problems from racism to sexism to homophobia, all of these things. We see it in celebrity culture. It gets amplified in these spaces. And then it's like, oh, why do we have these problems? I mean, there was an issue of People magazine that came out about, you know, young girls and eating disorders in the very magazine 
that I worked for, that I, you know, have a lot of love for, that I think is culturally very significant, but in a magazine that ridicules women's bodies and going, oh, all these young people have eating disorders. Well, we have issues about like, did you lose a hundred pounds or are you anorexic? Or like, why does Nicole Richie look so skinny today? What about Lindsay Lohan? Are they eating? Are they not? Why do they look fat? You know what I mean? And so it's like, of course this happens. And so much of it is, is targeted at women. You know, and on the consent privacy thing, I think it's really important that there's a couple points. I mean, one is that I think with celebrities that the question isn't so much, do they have privacy or not? It's where do we enforce the privacy, right? At the level of paparazzi or or magazines or the consumer, because magazines and all media outlets have the power to run or not run certain photos. They have the economic power to give more money for certain photos. And so we could incentivize them with the laws like we shouldn't publish pictures of celebrity children. And instead, the laws actually target the paparazzi and don't incentivize the magazines to do anything. So that if a paparazzo takes certain photos of a celebrity child, the paparazzo can be sued. The outlets can publish those images and they are not breaking the law. How does that make any sense, right? It shows that it's just about having a scapegoat. Okay, we're going to publish these photos. We're going to make a ton of money off of it. But you know that photographer who made a couple hundred bucks off of this image while putting themselves at risk? For us, they're going to get sued. They're going to, you know, get arrested or whatever may happen. And that brings me to the point of like, is it is the issue really privacy or is it an ability to monetize, right? Like, you know, I want to help give the fuller picture. And the goal isn't like, oh, now you hate the magazines, you hate Hollywood, you hate celebrities, or you still hate paparazzi. The goal for me is you never look at these magazines or Hollywood or celebrity culture the same again, that you really understand that something like Chris's death was the result of these same kinds of institutional practices. We don't even know exactly how it happened right? It's just that he was an unwanted subject, subject to the same kind of policing that led to the deaths of of people like George Floyd. Natasha's assault was a result of these practices, right? Gender discrimination, gender hierarchies. So we just, we can't talk about hierarchies and racism and inequality in this country without talking about Hollywood. Absolutely. And also, what was your DJ title from the competition that you won? (laughs) Vanessa, the Puerto Rican princess. The journey from like Vanessa, the Puerto Rican princess at 16 to like (laughs) professor (laughs) Vanessa, I just think is amazing and really interesting. (laughs) And I think could be like a separate like memoir for your second. Like, I just think people would really read it. That's incredible. I just think like the journey is major. So the book came out in summer 2020. Well, I feel like celebrity image production, has it evolved since then? Like, did the pandemic give people, like, more control over their images? And, like, any thoughts on, like, the Dumois of the world? Like, specifically, like, fan-submitted celeb sightings? Like, how has that impacted things? Yeah. I think the pandemic on some level gave celebrities more control over their images because we were on lockdown. And so you literally couldn't come into contact with people. I mean, I think about something like the Rolling Stone cover in 2020 of Bad Bunny and like his girlfriend shot the cover story because they were together in lockdown. So she becomes the first Latina ever to shoot a Rolling Stone cover. And it wasn't because that's what Rolling Stone wanted. It's because 
he had to have his girlfriend take the pictures. And I think there are a lot of stories like that where, you know, that kind of curation, it it gave an even deeper thirst to people, though, for that authentic, for that candid, for that, you know, one of a kind image, because we wanted so deeply for connection and, and people were in isolation. And so I think it made the post pandemic demand even higher to like have these very intimate photos, I think of celebrities, which I think that there is more control, but there's always going to be this demand because while we want those like, you know, bathroom selfies or whatever, we also want the picture they didn't want taken. Like we choose the best photos of ourselves. We also want to see the best photo someone else took that they think, oh, that's the best picture of you. You know what I mean? During the pandemic, when we're on lockdown, it was a real crisis. Like the paparazzi had to reinvent themselves because, I mean, they had to start doing things like, you know, food delivery and whatever they, I mean, the same kind of like freelance, whatever kind of labor they could get because we were all on lockdown. No one was leaving their homes. And if they were there, they were in masks. Even as things started to open up, I know a lot of the photographers got really good at being able to identify celebrities with masks on. And so there were, you know, there was a genre of like celebrities in masks photos or them out in LA doing outdoor activity where you could have your mask off. But so many photographers just had to abandon their their trade and you know work in construction work in the same kind of stereotypically latino labor that they were choosing paparazzi over has ever been like a freelance photographer union or something there's been conversation about it, but it's never gained any traction for for a multitude of reasons. I mean, as you know, like there is a stronghold of union work in the entertainment industry, but there are also very many reasons why, particularly for different kinds of precarious kind of labor, there's a stronghold against having that kind of thing form. And I think for this type of labor and how kind of deregulated it is, I think that makes it really hard. So what does it look like for celebrities to like not feign hate and like not feign like a breach of privacy if there hasn't been one or when there hasn't been one? Like, is there any celebrities who do Mm -hmm. that now or who like or be more open about their relationship to it or something? I've had these rare moments where that's happened, like the conversation with Selma Blair I think that there are these moments. I think when I have had exchanges with people about this, it's like literally most people simply don't think about it. They're just like, oh, the paparazzi are hated, end of story. There would have to be a lot more interest in like a deep reflection. And I think that a lot of the kind of liberal, perceived liberal politics of Hollywood, they don't really go that deep. It's like, I think a lot of people want to do the right thing but they don't really understand the issue. That, to me, so resonates with the thing I always talk about with blame and scapegoating, where, like, mm-hmm. it's easier to blame and scapegoat. That's, like, going to Taco Bell, not to, like, not to diminish Taco Bell, because, like, I fucking love Taco Bell. Like, their TikTok is, like, so fucking good, and I love their food so much. But it's, like... Send free merch. No, it's, a, it's, like, yes, send free Taco <laughs> Bell merch. But it's, like, it's easier to just, if you're really hungry or whatever... Like, it's easier to just go through the mm-hmm. drive through and pick that up really mm-hmm. quick than it is to go mm-hmm. home and, like, make mm-hmm. food. And, like, to me, mm-hmm. like, the blame is, like, the Taco Bell thing. And really, yeah. the nuance is, like, understanding there's, like, a much larger thing here at play. There's so many yeah. factors or so many players. And it's it's right. never that easy to just, like, level yeah. blame and demonize 
you know, so absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to answer your question about the Dumois stuff. Yes. So, I mean, just really quickly on that. I mean, in terms of things like Dumois and the fan submitted celebrity sightings, I mean, I think that this is all part of the same Hollywood industrial complex. And now it's just another way to feed the system. And I've been saying for several years, I organized an event at the Getty Center called Are We All Paparazzi Now? And I was really thinking, you know, over, I guess, about a decade ago, like, we all have pretty high quality cameras on our phones now. We can shoot 4K on an iPhone. We can, you know, we can all be paparazzi in any moment. And so I I think it's brings even more critique to this focus on demonizing paparazzi photographers when in fact, like any of us could take images at any time. So how do we know like when and who is a threat and in what moments? How do we decide that? What's really behind that at this point? So what do you think is on the horizon for Hollywood's paparazzi? That's a really good question. I mean, I think for them, it's really about constantly kind of reinventing themselves because they're at the whims of market. Like there are fewer paparazzi now than there were before the pandemic. That's for certain. In fact, most of the guys I worked with aren't shooting anymore. Some of them are, and they're still doing amazing work, but I think it's harder to get shots. I think people are more protective. I think that post-pandemic life is still not pre-pandemic life. (laughs) And so it just, life looks different. So I think they've just had to do so much adjusting. Um, I think it's a, a much tighter market. I don't see sort of more recognition or protection on the horizon for them. I feel like what we can do is educate about the sort of realities of paparazzi work and the demographics and, and really try to make people understand or help people understand this larger systemic problem that that comes with it being what I call the Hollywood industrial complex. I think it helps. I think because we have the language of like a prison industrial complex that when you put it in this context of like, this is a system that benefits and profits off of having people at the bottom. And these are the people who get scapegoated instead of really looking at these larger structural problems. Whenever people ask me about how people can be a better ally to queer people, I always think about education because if you don't know what's going on in your own backyard, then it's really hard for you to like advocate or so just even knowing. And I feel like I've learned so much today that I literally didn't know. So that was fierce. In Manufacturing (laughs) Celebrity, you quote a People Magazine prospectus from the 70s that says what interests people is other people. So as we move forward, knowing more of what we know now, is it, is it possible to responsibly consume celebrity news and images? I think that this question of responsibly consuming celebrity news and images is really hard because everything we consume is like potentially problematic, right? Like I teach classes on race and media and media production. And it's like, you know, I want people to look at things critically. And I think that's really the the key is, is, we can look at things critically. We can think about like what went into this work, who took the image. If we catch ourselves watching a scene on CNN of Beyonce and her kids, and there's lots of photographers and we say, oh, look at those paparazzi. Like, oh, wait, 
What did I say? Why am I saying that? I like seeing Beyonce and her kids. What's really the issue here? Ooh, who are the paparazzi? Who are we looking at? You know, like asking yourself these questions, thinking critically about celebrity or even thinking about the way that we take images of ourselves and post them. What are you thinking when you do that? What is your goal here? Why do you care about fame? Why do you care about notoriety? What are these deeper kinds of intrinsic issues around fame and status that we're all grappling with every day and that kids, I mean, I just can't even imagine having grown up with a smartphone and Instagram or TikTok. Like I just can't fathom the level of pressure that puts on young people. And so I think we just have to think critically about, about the images, about celebrity, about who we're worshiping because people worship celebrities. Why are we worshiping them? What does it say about us? What does it say about our culture? And, you know, thinking about what to keep in mind when you look at paparazzi images, I think, yes, definitely think about who's behind the image, but also look at the image and think about is the celebrity potentially coordinating here? I saw a recent set of, of images where I knew immediately it was set up. I could just tell by the way that they were engaged clearly with the photographer, smiling at them. I like I I'm going to call the photographer who I think took the set <laughs> because I just want to confirm that was staged, right? Like this is too good. Like you were inside a store photographing them. If you're inside a store photographing somebody and they don't want you there, you're going to get kicked out and they're going to know that you, you know what I mean? We're going to see in the picture that you weren't happy about it. So I think that if we actually look at the dynamics of the photos, we can actually see a lot more about this question of consent than we may have previously thought. Yes. Nailed it. Okay, so then uh, you also <laughs> mentioned earlier that you have the Bad Bunny syllabus. Uh, sign me up. We like. Can you share a bit about this work? Where can we learn more? Like, do we all have to come like go to college? <laughs> yes, yes. So, so the Bad Bunny Syllabus is a website. It's badbunnysyllabus.com. And it came about really organically because a few years ago, I had said, I, I want to teach a class about Bad Bunny, like focused on him, but really using it as a vehicle for teaching about Puerto Rico because he forwards so much about the current issues in Puerto Rico right now, it's colonial reality, gentrification on the island, all of these different things that he speaks about in his lyrics, that he speaks about in interviews. And he has been doing that since Hurricane Maria happened and, and devastated the island in 2017. He has been making an effort to really put Puerto Rico on the American map. Ironically, it's a property of the U.S. And most people don't know that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. They don't know that it is a colony of the U.S. Most people know so little. And so the fact that the biggest musician in the world is from this tiny, incredible island that has such rich history and culture and, and deep histories of resistance and, and anti-colonial struggle. And I think he embodies a lot of it. I don't think that he's responsible for fixing all of Puerto Rico's problems, but I think he's been a really important avenue for bringing attention to the island struggles. And so I developed this course called Bad Bunny and Resistance in Puerto Rico and then started getting so much interest in it. And so this syllabus project is basically a way for other people to be able to teach about him or learn about him. It has different sections that look at kind of how he's been uh, an advocate for LGBTQ issues, uh, specifically trans issues. He's been very vocal about trans rights, issues of political activism in Puerto Rico, issues of gender and sexuality, issues of 
race and racism. So I'm working on a book about him. I I can say I recently signed with a literary agency and we're working on a book about Bad Bunny in Puerto Rico. Amazing. And yeah. I love Bad Bunny. I'm just, would you I say love, he's your I fave? Mean, Top three? I would say he is my fave. I feel like I, I live and breathe Bad Bunny because it's not just the music. It's also the like education. My kids listen and dance to Bad Bunny. They call me La Profesora de Bad Bunny. If you say what's your, like your mom, they, we speak Spanish. They're, oh, like what's your mom do? They'll be like, Profesora. You say, de que? They go, de Bad Bunny. Because they know I teach a Bad Bunny class. But what was really cool is, I don't know if you saw today, the Rolling Stone cover article dropped and it's the July, August issue is Bad Bunny on the cover. And I was so happy because I got interviewed for that. And so I'm, I'm quoted in it. And uh, the author of the article was like, when we were interviewing, she's like, this is so weird. I feel like you must have been listening in on our interview because we talked about things like paparazzi. And he said the same thing. He said, when that Controversy happened. He was in the Dominican Republic and this fan came up and like tried to take a picture with him and he threw the cell phone and it like went viral, these videos of him throwing the cell phone and people were so mad at him. And I, my perspective was if that had been a paparazzo, everyone would have been celebrating him like, oh, you know, yay, Bad Bunny, you know, did something mean to a paparazzo. But because it was seen as like a woman who was a fan, people were on her side. And he said something to that effect. It came out in the article where he's like, anyone can be a paparazzo. I'm obsessed. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much for coming Mm -hmm. and sharing your work with us so generously. You're incredible. Y'all get into her book, get into her work, Manufacturing (laughs) Celebrity. It's out now. (laughs) Vanessa Diaz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was so much fun. (laughs) I had so much fun. You have been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guests and their areas of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on and on our Instagram at Curious with JVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. We love that story. You can follow us again on Instagram at Curious with JVN. Our editor is Nathaniel McClure. Welcome, Nathaniel McClure. We love you. Ah! Um, Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Chris McClure, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Samantha Martinez. Oh, and also, this is another true paparazzi story from just like a week ago. I was at dinner with Nicola in London, and then the waiter was like, oh, there's paparazzi outside. And I was like, oh, my God, like for me and Nicola. And then when we walked outside, (laughs) they only took pictures of Nicola. And like, they did not know who I was. They did not need a picture of me. And I was like doing my little like, uh, and I was like, oh. Like, and then I was like, okay, bye, girl. And then I went and got my car. They were like, not concerned with me at all. Hey. <laughs>